James Boyce once said, there are few things as fascinating as prophecy or as problematic. Many people are interested in the future. In 2016, I don't know what the numbers are for this year or last year for that matter, but in 2016, the fortune-telling industry was a $2 billion per year industry in the United States. Christianity also had its share of uh, money that was made in that industry as well in the various decades, probably beginning very, very famously, at least in the decades of the 70s, with how Lindsay's late great planet Earth and then since then, there's been uh, subsequent uh, novels that he has written, uh, many of those being best-selling sequels to that one in the mid-70s. And then in the 90s, there were the uh, Tim LaHaye, the, um, the books on the Left Behind series, some 16 of those books in a series, and each of those have been best-sellers, and that has uh, generated a whole lot of, um, uh, I say, spin-off as far as movies go and everything else that goes along with that particular set of novels. And then you move into the 2000s, even up to this present time, and you have Jonathan Kahn's uh, best-selling uh, novels, The Harbinger, and then The Oracle, and then The Harbinger 2, and, and on and on it goes. And each of these are, of course, novels about prophecy and the future and etc. Christ's warnings in Matthew 24 that Pastor Tyler has read in verse 6 of wars and rumors of wars, in verse 7 of famines and earthquakes, in verse 10 of tribulation and hatred, in verse 11 of false prophets, Verse 24 of false Christ, of false signs and false wonders. Verse 29 of cosmic disruptions of the sun and moon that will be darkened, of stars falling from heaven and the powers of heaven that will be shaken. And verse 21 of the great tribulation have captivated and fascinated people uh, and Christians and for centuries. Matthew 24 is part of a larger discourse. It's part of a discourse that's called the Olivet Discourse that is recorded in Matthew 24 and 25. This discourse is the last recorded public discourse. Excuse me, the last discourse. I shouldn't say public because that's in 23. It's the last discourse of Jesus Christ that's recorded in Matthew. Um, prophecy, and this is a prophetic discourse, is notoriously difficult. Speaking about Matthew 24 and 25, going back to James Boyce for a moment, uh, he's, he writes that it is an important part of the gospel but it's also a passage that has puzzled and divided commentators throughout the long ages of the church. William Hendrickson writes of this discourse, or wrote of this discourse. It's not claimed, of course, that any exegete is able completely to untangle what is here intertwined so as to indicate accurately for each individual passage just how much refers to Jerusalem's fall and how much to the great tribulation and second coming. And R.C. Sproul began a, began a sermon on the Olivet Discourse by saying, I sail my ship into troubled waters. Well, my fellow elders have tasked me with preaching on this discourse. So I don't know if that means they love me or they want me gone. Uh, <laughs> nah, it goes back to a series of sermons that we were preaching in Matthew, and it was just kind of left. We got to this point and we stopped, and that was some years ago. And uh, so 
thought it might be a good time to pick it back up and and uh, asked me if I would try to try to preach on it. I said, sure. <laughs> Being the charge ahead idiot that I am. Um, so we will try Matthew 24 and 25. There are five major <clears throat> discourses, at least some look at as Matthew this way. There are five major discourses that are recorded in Matthew. Five major discourses by Jesus that are recorded in Matthew. And thus, some look at Matthew as being deliberately patterned after the Pentateuch. Because there's five books, the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, that were written by Moses. And so, five discourses, thus Matthew is deliberately fashioned after the Pentateuch. And arranged that way, it's, it presents Jesus as the prophet, like Moses, that is spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, where we read, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Now, the others that say, no, that's not actually the arrangement. That's, there's actually six and of course, I don't put chapter 23 in the Olivet Discourse. It is a, it's a standalone. There's obviously a difference in 23, chapter 23, and then when you go to chapter 24. Chapter 23 is a public discourse in the temple. 24 is a private. We're going to get into this a little bit more. But this design is, is generally recognized because each of these discourse, discourses end with a similar statement. Chapter seven twenty eight. When Jesus finished these sayings, and that's 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 the formula right there, and you find that repeated in eleven one, thirteen fifty three, nineteen one, and twenty six one. So you have that formula when Jesus finished these sayings, and so that's the reason a lot of people look at Matthew and they arrange it these five basic discourses by Christ. Because you have that repeated formula as you go through the gospel. And of course then, this, all of the discourse being the last uh, of these major uh, discourses. If you look at 26.1, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. And so there it is. Now, the Olivet Discourse is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, that be Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke. It's called the Olivet Discourse because of where Jesus was when he gave this discourse, and that is the Mount of Olives. Like the Sermon on the Mount. He's on a mount and he preaches it. And so it gets his name from where Jesus is when he preaches it. If you'll notice chapter 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives. So this is where Jesus physically is when he gives this discourse. Now, <clears throat> prior to this, if you'll flip back in your Bibles to chapter 23, prior to this, Christ has been at the temple and he is speaking to the crowds. If you look back at chapter 23, verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now, he's, this is his last public address in 23. 24 is private. He's at the Mount of Olives. He's speaking to his disciples. But prior to this, Christ is at the, is at the temple. He is speaking to the crowds. He's speaking to his disciples. And in that, this address in 23... He pronounces the seven woes to the, to the scribes and Pharisees. And you can read those in the first 36 verses of Matthew 23. And then after that, he laments over Jerusalem's pending destruction. Verse 37, Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often when I've gathered your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. So he pronounces the seven woes, and then he makes a prophetic statement about the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And then if you flip over or look at 24.1, we read Jesus left the temple and was going away. And as He's going away, He will leave the temple and He will go to the Mount of Olives, which is just about a two-mile walk, go through the Valley of Kedron, up to the Mount of Olives, and it would probably take Him, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 minutes to walk that distance. And He's seated on the Mount of Olives, and His disciples come to Him. And this is where He teaches, gives this discourse in 24 and 25. Now, seated on the Mount of Olives, he would have a great view of Jerusalem and the temple. And so the question that the disciples ask in verse 3 of 24, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when, uh, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? That question, or questions, goes back to what just happened before he walked, as he walked away from the temple and made the walk over to the Mount of Olives. You follow what I'm saying to you? That question harkens back to the end of 23. To that final public address. And that final public address, the close of it, back to 23, 37, 38, and 39, is made with great pathos. In fact, Luke says that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He looks at the city and weeping, he says, How often would I have gathered you, but you would not. There's great compassion as he looks at Jerusalem and makes a statement of pending destruction. And it's made emphatically with finality. Your house is left to you desolate. The special day or the day of special opportunity is done. It's over. It's complete. Your house is left desolate. I would have, but you would not. It's done. And he walks away. And he says that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. No doubt a reference to Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Romans 14, verse 11, For as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And then as we read in Revelation that we have started the study of, Chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so. Amen. And so Christ says, I would have, but you would not. Your house is desolate. You will not see Me again. Until you say, blessed is He. And He walks away. Now hearing these moving, emphatic statements filled with such passion and yet such finality, it's natural that His disciples would be filled with questions. And it's understandable too that they tie some events together in their minds. 
such as the destruction of Jerusalem and what is called the parousia. That is the coming again of Christ and all that goes with that. But it's important for us to realize that Christ separates those events. They ask questions tying events together. Jesus answers the questions taking those events apart. And what you most of the time hear on Matthew 24 is, I don't know, well, I'll get there. It's a little bit confusing a lot of times what you hear. But Christ, really, His answer isn't so... He just sort of... He separates their questions. They put things together, which is understandable. They put together the fall of Jerusalem with the coming again of Christ, the parousia. And Jesus says, no, no. And He pulls them apart. He answers question A. And he answers question B. So they leave the temple, Matthew 24, and as they leave the temple, they've just heard Jesus say that it's coming down, that their house is left desolate. And as they leave the temple, His disciples say to Him, but look at the buildings. Chapter 24, verse 1. They point out to Him the buildings of the temple. Mark says, it records this, in this discourse, as he records this discourse, Mark says, uh, records it this way, look teacher, what wonderful stones and, and what wonderful buildings. Now, of course, this is Herod, Herod's temple. He's building it. But still, it's a magnificent building or buildings. And as Christ has just pronounced these woes on the scribes and Pharisees, and he's just said, your house is left desolate. Um, and he's leaving. The glory is departing from the temple. And his disciples are like, what? What? Look, look, look how magnificent it is. And Jesus responds to them in verse 2 of chapter 24. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, I want to go back and read you from antiquity. A brief statement on that. Just very briefly. <clears throat> and we may look at more of this in coming weeks, or we may not, but this is from Josephus. <clears throat> just to give you a sense of the accuracy of what he just said, Christ just said. And this is from the historian Josephus, who was an ex-combatant, He's Jewish. He was an ex-combatant. And he writes a history of the, of the Jewish wars. And he, write, he starts writing it just about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. True enough, he writes with a Roman bias. He probably had to for, to survive. But it's generally recognized as a good history and fairly accurate. And I'm not going to read, I'm just going to read you one, one little blip. And this is from book seven of the War of the Jews. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, he's talking about the Jewish people, the Romans have, they're basically finished now. Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, for they, would not, for they would not have spared any, had there remained any, or any other such work to be done, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were of the greatest eminency, and so much of the wall as enclosed the city on the west side. This wall was spared in order to afford a, uh, a camp for such as were to lie in garrison. And were the towers also spared in order, they left three, and were towers were also spared in order to demonstrate to posterity what kind of city it was and how well fortified, 
which the Roman valor had subdued. But for all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. They tore it down. They tore it down. And Jesus said to His disciples, you're talking about the magnificent walls and buildings? There's not even going to be a stone left on top of a stone. So they travel. They walk across the Valley Kedron. They leave the city. They leave the temple. They walk across the Valley Kedron up to the Mount of Olives, which is about 330 feet in elevation above the city. And Mark tells us that they were facing the temple. They were over against it. So Jesus strategically places them when they cross the valley up the, up the mountain. So he strategically places them so they're looking back across like this. And that's kind of what I was trying to show you in that little uh, drawing here, painting. So that when they look down across the Kedron, back across to Jerusalem, what they see is Jerusalem and the temple below them. And disciples, you can imagine, they have been mulling over for the last half hour or more as they've walked. They have been mulling over in their minds what the Lord has just said to them. There's not going to be a stone on top of a stone. Their house is left desolate. And Jesus sits down on purpose. And there it is. And they come to him in private. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming at the close of the age? Now, unfortunately, there's a, and I'm not picking on the translation here, but the, the King James has an unfortunate translation and then uses the, the term wor world here. And I think this probably has kind of fed some things, unfortunately. In the Greek, the word is ion, which is age. It's not cosmos. It's not world. It's, it's age. And so I think this, this reading you've heard is, is proper. They're asking not when it's going to be the end of the world, but when's it going to be the close of the ion, the age, not the cosmos. And that's what Jesus answers. According to Mark, it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew who asked the question, which is not surprising. Other than Andrew, you don't normally find him in that group. He's in that group asking the question. Well, last week... You learn that there's seven, there's different, there's four. There's different interpreting schemes. I said seven, so I apologize. There's four basic interpretive schemes as you begin to look at Revelation. Well, surprise, surprise. There's four basic interpretive schemes as you begin to look at the, the uh, discourse, the, all the discourse. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to go through that. It's not my intent to flesh those out. It's not my intent to set up straw men. And joust with them. I just don't want to do that. I am going to mention one. And I do that because it's probably the most popular and influential. And it's probably influenced the way you think about this passage. And you've probably heard it. So I am going to mention one. Not just to pick on it because it is so popular and so influential. And it is the one that's behind most novels. And it is the one that teaches that the prophecies of Jesus in Matthew 24 pertain to future way yonder future events that are to occur at the end of the church age. Whereas much of what Jesus teaches and speaks about here actually was to occur in the lifetime of his audience. 
And it is the position that teaches that the great tribulation of verse 21 will occur in some future millennial kingdom when a temple, another temple will be built. And that what's talked about here is about that temple, whereas the tribulation that's spoken of here actually refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And a position that refers to the cosmic upheavals, particularly in verse 26, is against the Gentiles who persecute the Jews, whereas the judgment talked about here is against the Jews for rejecting the Messiah. So I will refer to that one just briefly. Now this popular view, in my opinion, ignores the, some obvious exegetical truths in the passage and actually seems to encourage the very actions that Jesus is warning against in Matthew 24. So let me make a basic statement concerning a very simple approach and the way I'm approaching this passage. The disciples are joining two events and their question tell us when the or maybe well yeah there's two events tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age the sign of your coming and close of the age are, that's one thing in their mind now clearly the question has two parts the destruction of Jerusalem and the sign of Christ's coming but there's a single definite article in the Greek that puts those things together in their minds and that is the the now, in answering, in answering them, Jesus separates these events, and that's clear. And there's an obvious translation in, in your Bible. Look, a, a transition, I shouldn't say translation. There's an obvious transition in your Bible. So look at, let's say, verse 34. Let's just read that, 34 and 35. And we're going to try to dig into this a little bit as we go along. And hopefully it'll be get clearer and clearer to you. Because it's really not, this part's really not that hard. There's other parts that are. Jesus said, truly, amen. I say to you, this generation, speaking to the disciples sitting there with him, will not pass away until all these things take place. Now you've got to do something with that. <coughs> and he goes on to say, and this goes to the very sovereignty and lordship of Christ. And he goes on to say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, what he just said is truth. Everything he just said is truth. And heaven itself will, will go away before what he just said doesn't happen. And what he said will happen will happen before some of those men sitting there see the grave. Now that one is the transition. And then you go to the next verse, but, what does that tell you? As a contrasting conjunction. It's contrasting something with something that was said before. But, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. What day and what hour? The parousia, the coming again of the Lord. Now he's answering a different question. Now he's transitioned. Okay. Jesus understood that these two events were not concurrent. 
But the disciples didn't understand that. And that's, that's understandable. R.T. France in his commentary on Matthew writes, the linking of the two events by the disciples shows that the destruction of the temple was of such momentous significance that to them and no doubt to all who heard Jesus' prediction, it seemed it must be the beginning of the end. And again, I quote from Hendrickson who writes, the very form in which the question is cast, the juxtaposition of the clauses, seems to indicate that as these men interpreted the Master's work, Jerusalem's fall, particularly the destruction of the temple, would mean the end of the world. And while I readily agree that there is a relationship between lesser judgments and greater judgments, and we certainly see that here, Jesus will show the two are not the same. And that there is a period of time between the destruction and the judgment of Jerusalem and the coming again of Christ. Now, Jesus' commentary clearly reveals a separate events here. Look at verses 6 and 8 of Matthew 24. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, all these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, in verse 6, he says, the end is not yet. What does that mean? What's the plain sense of those words? What does that, what, what does that mean? That's not tough, is it, folks? It means what he, he meant what he said. You're going to hear of these things, but the parousia, the end, the coming of Christ is not yet. That's what it means. These are not signs of the end. These are not signs of the coming again of Christ. According to verse 8, they are but the beginning of birth pains. That's what he said. That's plain. What does that mean? The beginning of of birth pains. Well, it's not the end. What is it? It's but the beginning of something. Well, in one sense, it's the end of Judaism. It's the end of the temple. It's the end of worship in the temple. It's the end of that special privilege. But it's the beginning of something else. Of a new age. Then we go to verse 14. And this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. I could go back to verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel, the kingdom, will be proclaimed uh, throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What end? The end of the world? And that's usually the way that's presented. Is that what he's talking about? And back in verse 13... Those that endure to the end? Is that, is that what's going on here? Now, I know you can read anything on the internet you want to, but I, 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 went, I deliberately looked this up because I knew it was there. And I hadn't read this particular statement, but I knew this position was there, so I deliberately went and found this. So let me read you this quote. As a young child, I was taught that Jesus would not return until everyone on earth had heard the gospel. Is there any truth to this? Answer, yes, there is truth to that. See Matthew 24, 14. We just read. I believe this will ultimately be accomplished through the period known as the Great Tribulation. Revelation 7 describes those who have come to Christ from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Well, now that just dismisses what we looked at in Matthew 24, 34, and 35, where Jesus said, all this is going to happen for some of you see the grave. So let's think about this. What happened at Acts, on chapter 2 of Acts, on the day of Pentecost? 
What are, what are we told there in Acts? We were told now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every... Where? Every nation under heaven. And what happened there? Peter stood up and he preached the gospel to them. And many of them believed. And then I read Paul's own testimony in Romans chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, where Paul said, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Oh, what's that, the apostle? What did you just say? Their voice has gone out. Where? Everywhere. He's talking about the Roman Empire. It's gone out. It's been declared. The gospel was no longer restricted as Christ restricted it earlier. Just go to the house of Israel. It's no longer restricted there. He will say in Matthew 28, go out to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's what I understand me said here. And then we look at Verses 4 through 14. I'll just give you this running commentary. Look at verses 4 through 14. Jesus gives, and actually I renamed the sermon. That will be a name for probably next week or following week or some other time. So that's not the name of this sermon today. Today's title is Signs That Are Really Not Signs. <laughs> so we look at verse 14, and Jesus gives, uh, uh, talks about warning signs that really are not warning signs. So he talks about in these verses, he speaks about false messiahs. He speaks about wars and rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes, persecutions, apostasy that's falling away. He talks about false prophets. And at the end of all that, he says, but none of these are signs of Christ's return. But they are but the beginning of their birth pains. He says that this generation will not pass away until all of these things are accomplished. But remember, concerning the return of Christ, nobody, no man, not even the angels, not even the Son of Man, knows that hour and that day. And then in verses 15 through 22, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, and he speaks about, uh, about warning signs. And he says, in verse 15, he talks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, and then in parentheses, let the reader understand... That you understand this. Now in Daniel chapter 8 verse 13, chapter 9 verse 27, chapter 11 verse 31, chapter 12 verse 11, you read about the abomination that makes desolation. And it seems to refer to Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 168 BC erected in the temple that then stood an altar to Zeus and offered a pig on it. Now, if that's not desecrating a temple, a Jewish temple, what would? He offered a pig blood to, God, to the God, fake God Zeus in a Jewish temple. That's desecrating. Well, that's in the past in Matthew 24. That Christ is saying something just that awful. Look, something just that awful is going to happen again. And it did. Under the Romans, it did. And then Jesus also goes on to point that there's not just, that, that there's not signs, of, there's, there's, there's only one sign of his coming. People are looking for signs, signs, signs. He says, there's not signs, there's one sign. And it's, it's, like, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. That's where you pick up in verse 36 and start reading forward in chapter 24. And it's, only, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. And there's only one sign, and that is that simply the Son of Man will appear in glory. Don't be fooled, is what he's telling his disciples. 
Don't be fooled by signs and wonders that really aren't signs and wonders. If someone says Christ is here or Christ is there, if He's in the desert or He's in this room, don't be fooled. If someone says that there is this sign that Christ is coming, don't be fooled. Why? Because the Son of Man, Christ says, will come suddenly as in the days of Noah. He doesn't need signs pointing to Him. Why? Well, I'd rather think the emptying of graves and the resurrection of the dead will be sign enough. I'd rather think the blast of the trumpet of the archangel will take care of that. And I'd rather think that the shout of a victorious Christ returning will, will take care of that. He doesn't need signs. Like lightning, Christ says, He will be visible from the east to the west. Everywhere, simultaneously, at once, that's it. That's sign enough. He doesn't need signs. And He tells His disciples, don't believe that. When they say He's here, or He's there, or He's somewhere else, don't fall for that. Can you, can you see that? He repeats that to them over again here. Don't go there. He says, don't, don't, don't fall for that. Now, like the disciples, we live in that same period between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That's where we live. And like the disciples, we live in troubling times. And terrible things happen. And I tell you, the last few days have reminded me of my youth in this way. When I was a young boy, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And some of you in here are old enough to remember that. Many of you in here are not. But I am. And I remember conversation about it, conversations about it, even though I was young. Conversations about sandbagging. There were two basements in Wayne County, and we lived next door to one. And I was over at the church in Scriven, and sandbagging the basement. How long will it take to sandbag it? And men talking about that. How will we get food and water? Going to school. And going through the drills, getting under our desk, putting our heads down, even then making jokes about it. And you know, for several days, it was a it was a real threat. And then a few years after that, I don't know, I was twelve, maybe I don't remember how old I was. Later after that reading a book called The Last Babylon. And, you know, the fear and terror of that could hurt. As a boy, it's like, oh, yeah. If that could strike in you. That, that, you know, that's, that was growing up in America in the 60s. That was real. Hadn't really thought about a lot of that stuff till the last few days. And again, now we're hearing... We're hearing war. And we're not hearing just any war. So it made me think of that. And as I thought of that and thought of this passage, and, and it made me stop and think about the horrible things, horrific things. If I haven't seen them in my own eyes, I've seen them via media, which is another thing about our day, is we see things instant remember was it 19 I can try to remember the year of that awful um, and I didn't take the time to look it up but that awful uh, tsunami at Christmas time what year was that 2000 huh 2004 and just was that Thailand I was thinking and it, I mean I remember looking at a, a, a map and it just totally restructured that area. And what was it? 250,000? 200,000 people? A quarter of a million people? It staggers your mind 
when you think about stuff like that. And, and then on and on and on I could go with examples of horrific things that happened. And it makes you think of, makes me think of Matthew 24. Hellbot Comet and all kind of stuff that happens, you know, people run around here and there. Well, here he is and there he is. And, and every time something happens, there's, you know, it's like somebody said about Hal Lindsey one time, every, what is it, every three years he comes out with another book about Christ coming again in five years. You know, just, just, just keep turning them out. It's like, good grief. But here he is, here he is. You know, it's like, no, no, goodness gracious, people. Wake up. I mean, read, read God's word. That's what he's talking about here. But we live in that. We live in the horrible days. And Christ told his disciples, don't be fooled by signs that aren't signs of the end. Don't get caught up in rapture mania. But live every day like Christ is coming today. And that's why we'll get down into that. <clears throat> you don't know the day, the hour, the time. Then you have the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents. The final judgment, the point of that is, we don't know. So live like it's today. That's where he will go in this, in this passage, in this discourse. So I really don't need to preach any more sermons, do I? That was it. <laughs> That's what Christ says. I want to read you a... I think I might have used this before, but if I have, I don't remember when, so... Maybe your forgetters as good as mine. This is an illustration from Donald Barnhouse, who was pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia from 1927 to 1960. But this is from 1939. I don't remember that one, but I just I've read the illustration. Uh, he was preaching in Scotland, and his family, I don't know part of his family, but his family was in, on vacation in Normandy, France, 1939. Got the dates, historians. And he was leaving Scotland, and he was going to Ireland to preach in a, a series of meetings. But he had a week in between, so he thought, I'll go see my family in Normandy before I have to go to Ireland. So he arranged for a flight, and as he caught the flight, they told him, in France, you probably shouldn't do that. Um, you probably not, excuse me, in Scotland, you probably shouldn't go there because you might not get out. And, but he said he'd do it anyhow, so he went on. And the week went by, and Thursday he got the word, there are no more flights out. And if you're not a historian, we're talking about World War II and the invasion of Germany coming in to Poland. Kind of like today, there's Russia today. <clears throat> so he had to catch a train, so he's, he's on a train across um, France trying to get out uh, where he catches a ship, a ship from uh, Paris, uh, uh, coast of, of France, over to England, and then from England, another ship to Ireland. So anyhow, he's on a ship. Finally catches a ship. He trains across and catches a ship. And sure enough, all the, the, the flights are canceled and all that. But as he's going across France, they mobilize the army. And at that time, all the men are in the army. If you're of age in France, you're, you're part of it. And so as he goes across France, um, they're mobilized. They have mobilized. And... Um, he just he makes the he makes the note that as soon as the order was received in every hamlet and village, there was an instant response, and the the, the toxin sounded, the, the alarm, the bells they rang, and he talks about how in the Middle Ages, when few people knew how to read in Europe, they developed a code where they used church bells, to alert the countryside, and the bells they would have different, I suppose ways they would ring them, but sometimes they would tell if somebody was married or if a child was born or baptized or somebody had died and they also used them to declare or to indicate war. So everywhere he went, all across France, the bells were ringing, the toxins were sounding. And um, 
It said men by the hundreds were leaving their weeping wives and children were boarding trains that would take them to their particular mobilization centers. And then on the fight the Germans, many would never come back. Towns through which we passed would later crumble under the bombs. And then he, he finally gets to the ship. He's on the ship. And he meets the captain. They're listening to the radio. And he gets ashore in England. And it's September 1, 1939. And from there, he catches a taxi. Um, and he said, but what caught his attention there is, is the thousands of children. This is in England, in London. Thousands of children lined up for immediate evacuation from London. He walked out among the children. I saw a pitiful sight. Children who in their fear and commotion of the moment were already victims of the war. One little child seemed to sum up the whole picture of this misery. He had been given some chocolate and had managed to smear it all over his face. He had wet his pants. He had begun to cry. His cries and expression of misery mixed with terror. But nothing could be done. His case was but one little island of misery in the middle of a great continent of misery. And then they, he's on the train and they, he keeps picking up troops and children and whatnot. And that night he should have been in Belfast, but he finally reaches the coast and is uh, waiting on a ship. And then after, uh, later he's on the ship and he finally gets to, to Belfast at three in the morning and he's met by a committee waiting on him. And one of them said to him, I hope you will have a good sermon. It may be the last some of these men will ever hear. And so he's in his room, and he's, he's 3 o'clock in the morning. He worships the next morning at 11. And he's standing there thinking, what, will I, what am I going to preach? And uh, So they pick him up the next morning, and um, the preacher says to him, thank God I do not have to preach. The church will be full of lads who will never come back. I pray God will give you something for them. And they make their way to the church and and they're in the pulpit and it's about time for him to stand up. They've been singing some hymns. And um, an elder slipped a note to the pastor who handed it at the barn house and it said, uh, no reprieve from Hitler, the prime minister has declared war. And then he's to stand up and preach. I'll tell you, there's a lot of things go through your mind sometime when you're about to preach and a lot of them just really knock you down but I couldn't I could hardly imagine that one um, so he stands up to preach and he tells the folks how he began to outline his sermon what was in his mind uh, and he says uh, that I have a text it's the most wonderful text in the Bible for such a day September 3 1939 it was spoken by Jesus Christ and it was a command Matthew 24 6 that's the reason I'm reading this to you it comes from our text you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you're not alarmed. That was the passage text he was using. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you're not alarmed. He then began to recount his experiences. And then he talked about the alarms and, and what he saw. And along the way, as he recounted it, he would stop and say, Do not be alarmed. Millions of homes will be broken. Do not be alarmed. Children will be torn from their mothers and will represent in their cries all the wells that have been going up from all the world. But Jesus said, do not be alarmed. Tensions were mounting in the church, but then when monstrous grief had been piled on agonizing terror, Barnhouse stopped and said, these words are either the words of a madman or they are the words of God. He shook his fist toward heaven and cried, God, unless Jesus Christ is God, these words are the most horrible. They could be spoken to men uh, who have hearts that can weep and bowels that can be gripped by human suffering. Men are dying. Do not be alarmed. Children are crying in their misery with no beloved face in sight. Do not be alarmed. How can Jesus Christ say such a thing? And I would just stop here and say to you, that these words have been said over and again since they have been spoken by Christ and they're not a statement about, well, they're, they're not signs that Jesus is of His coming. The point is, 
They are words that are spoken throughout every generation, time and time again. And they're words of our Lord. Do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. We not know the day and hour He's coming. And there are false Christs, and there are false prophets, and there are liars. And that's not the... And Jesus, is, that's His point is, don't get caught up in that mania. But then came the answer, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of history. He's God of detailed circumstances. Nothing has ever happened that has not flowed in the channel of, that God has dug for it. There's never been any events that have flamed up in spite of God to leave Him astonished or confused. The sin of man has reduced the world to an arena of passion and fury. Men tear at each other's throats. Yet in the midst of history of which Jesus Christ is Lord, each individual who has believed in Him as Savior will know the power of His resurrection and will learn the events, however terrible, cannot separate them from the love of God. This is our God and this is the Word of God. Jesus knew what it was to come in the war pits of human history. But He told His disciples, do not be alarmed. Wars have come and they will come again. People will suffer. Men will die. But instead of dismay, we are to serve Jesus faithfully, even in the midst of these bad things, until He comes again. And I think, above all things, that is the message of Matthew 24, at least the first part of it. It's not a rallying cry of rapture mania to try to figure out when Jesus is coming, but rather... It is don't be fooled. Don't get caught up in looking for signs that are not signs because nobody knows. But rather serve the Lord faithfully. For when He comes, it'll be as lightning from the east to the west. But thanks be unto God that we serve a great and wonderful God. And I don't know where you are in your life and I don't know the sins in your life. But even the sins in our life that want to suck us down and consume us and destroy us, even Christ can conquer, has and does conquer those on His cross. So call upon Him. Ask Him for forgiveness. Go to Him. Justification is not how good you are, where you stand, by your works before Christ. It's how good Christ is and what He's done. And you're standing in Him. And that's what really matters. Not can I figure out the tea leaves? Or do I have an opinion about, I don't know, 40 other things that Christians want to argue over. But rather, do I know my sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful how you can untie the knots that we seem to tie and strings that we can just tangle up. And it seems like, that, Lord, you with great simplicity can cut through all of that and go to the heart of the matter. We thank You, Lord, for that. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You, Lord, that in a world of sin and heartache and trouble, a, war, a world of wars and rumors of wars, a world of apostasy, a world of horrific acts of man upon man, a world of... Uh, lies and false teaching that you are truth and that through you comes grace and mercy and life itself. So Lord, help us to look to you, trust in you, serve you faithfully. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.